The UN says that humanity stands on the brink of catastrophic man-made climate change. But is it true? Not a chance. But we do stand on the brink of catastrophic government policies that threaten to ruin the nation our forefathers built and defended against tyranny. So what drives the climate scare, Jay? Besides simple ignorance, the scare is driven by corporate greed and the desire of governments to control all aspects of our lives, Tom. Is this part of something more sinister? Indeed it is. Whether it's climate change or a pandemic or socialism, it really means sacrificing your rights and accepting the tyranny of the fourth branch of government, the bureaucracy. It must be stopped. This is The Other Side of the Story with Dr. Jay Lair and Tom Harris of the International Climate Science Coalition. Climate change activists in dozens of U.S. states and cities have been suing privately owned oil and gas companies. The activists and their wealthy patrons are trying to cripple the oil and gas industry in any way possible. Jay, is this part of some sort of a well-orchestrated campaign to ruin America's most important energy sources? I don't think there's any question about that being the facts, uh, Tom. I don't know that we fully understand why they want to destroy the nation, but uh, they're anti-capitalists, they're Marxists, and you pull the rug out from under the energy that drives the country and you effectively destroy the country. And that's what's going on. And I'm incredibly excited about our guest today because he understands this from a, uh, a legal perspective. And in the almost two years we've been doing this show, I don't think we've had quite an experienced lawyer uh, with us as Chris Horner is. So go ahead and describe Chris's background. Yeah, sure, Jay. Our guest today is Christopher C. Horner an attorney in Washington, D.C., who represents policy groups as well as regulated entities on energy, environment, and regulatory issues. Chris received his Juris Doctorate from Washington University in St. Louis and for years served on the Federalist Society's International and National Security Law Practice Group's Executive Committee. For two decades, Chris was a senior fellow at the Competitive Enterprise Institute, where he represented the Institute, scientists, and members of the U.S. House of Representatives and U.S. Senate on matters of environmental policy at the federal court level and before the U.S. Supreme Court. As an attorney, Chris now represents CEI, Government Accountability and Oversight, CFAC, Energy Policy Advocates, IER, and other policy groups in open records and other policy matters. Chris has testified before the United States Senate Committees on Foreign Relations and Environment and Public Works, and has worked on legal and policy issues with numerous think tanks and other policy organizations around the globe. He has also spoke on many occasions before members of the European Parliament, as well as policymakers in European capitals on a range of issues. Chris is the author of four books, including two bestsellers, Red Hot Lies, How Global Warming Alarmists Use Threats, Fraud, and Deception to Keep You Misinformed. And the second book, The Politically Incorrect Guide to Global Warming and Environmentalism, both of which we will link to when the show goes to podcast on Monday. So we're really lucky to have you on the show today, Chris. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Tom and uh, Jay. And you know, Tom, I remember you mentioned Red Hot Lies. I remember corresponding with you quite a bit when I was writing that. You were invaluable, in fact. 
Okay, that's good to know. <laughs> well, uh, Chris, I have read both books, outstanding. Uh, I may now be the most senior scientist in point of age that's been working on the climate change fraud, the global warming fraud. Uh, I think I'm a year or two older than Will Happer. Richard Lindzen might have a year on me. But uh, I go back to the mid-70s when every news magazine had a picture of a glacier coming down on us. And the threat was global cooling, not global warming. When that didn't scare people enough, they switched over to global warming. And of course, I realized then it was never about science. It was never about the weather or the temperature of the planet. It was basically about destroying capitalism. So I've been involved now almost a half a century. And I'm wondering, my, my first question is interesting. I'm wondering if you think the, the election that's coming up next week might be a beginning of, of turning back this humongous fraud that has been trying to destroy the country for at least the last 30 years. I, I'm absolutely expecting a congressional turnover, a small majority in the Senate and a large majority in the House. I can't say for sure how active these people will be on the climate change issue, but I'd sure like to hear your opinion. Well, so the projections as we speak suggest a result that in listening to the campaigns and the turn in public opinion certainly seems to be grounded in great part in this massive loss of faith and trust in institutions. And we've seen it coming well-earned in many cases, I may possibly most in recent years. And obviously the COVID, the pandemic and the shutdown and the reversals of opinion and the, the, the efforts to destroy, truly to destroy, we politely say cancel now, anyone who disagreed, but was later proved right because they expressed skepticism. I think that sunk in. Now I came to this real quickly. I always like to point out, I came to this just, I had just some healthy skepticism, but I hadn't worked on the issue. Didn't know anything about global warming. When I was, I stumbled into meetings on behalf of industry back in 1997, speaking of how long in the tooth we are on this. And it was, it was on behalf of industry and green groups. And they were all in the, in the conference room of fancy Washington, New York law firms trying to get together to figure out how to get the Kyoto Treaty. This was spring of 1997 when I first found myself in these meetings. And I was skeptical. I expressed some skepticism to my new employer. I just joined from a, from a law firm. The employer was Enron. And Enron had invented this business with BP. And I had not been read into that business plan. You know, they bought the world's largest windmill company cheap because it's not economic, always be dependent upon subsidies. And I uh, had the world's second best, biggest gas pipe network outside of Gazprom. And, and they were they had a great plan. Ken Lay was a political economist and he had a plan to uh, have his friends in government reward investments made and on gas will always be economic. But I expressed my skepticism. It went over like a lead balloon. And that relationship was very short lived. And I found myself working with the Competitive Enterprise Institute not too long thereafter. But it was this, I was, I'm old enough to have grown up during the Leonard Nimoy specials and during the cooling. And so are a lot of other people, including voters. And they've seen what's going on when you express what is never wrong, skepticism, and been proven right as people were destroyed. They lost their jobs, they lost their livelihoods, some lost their careers. So all of that's, that's my way of saying, 
I think that this in part informs whatever happens is going is projected to happen. How active Congress would be? Well, sadly, probably not too proactive. You've seen an awful lot of, quote, conservative money go into supporting this. I can tell you from correspondence obtained in open records litigation that the very wealthy green Republicans have a direct line to all of the members who will be in leadership, in particularly in the House, and to their Gmails and so on. This is, of course, where the money is, uh, the climate movement. And so Republicans like to use it when the public senses overreach. But I'm afraid I have the soft bigotry of low expectations for anything positive being done. Stopping anything new, yeah, I think they'll be probably pretty good on that. And that's a start. We're hemorrhaging money and harming the economy with this energy scarcity agenda. Clearly what it is, energy rationing, energy scarcity. So at bare minimum, they're sensing the public mood. Politicians are opportunistic. We have a chance to further educate, seize on what has been very proper and now excited skepticism about expert opinion and insistence that no one disagrees. And if you do, you must be destroyed. Mm-hmm. So anyway, it's a start. I expect what's going well, to happen is a start, but we uh, have to keep, keep educating and pressing. Well, I am a uh, cockeyed optimist. I'm a little more optimistic, but quite frankly, I think you have uh, nailed it quite precisely for our audience. I'm particularly concerned about collusion between our uh, university people and law firms and the, the government. And there are all kinds of lawsuits that are being helped, actually, by uh, university types to sue oil companies for uh, being deceptive about climate change. And I don't actually understand that. I mean, the lawsuits seem to be saying that the oil companies aren't being honest about the impact of uh, the development of our fossil fuels on the temperature of the planet. Now, I have told our audiences now for the almost two years we've been on the air, a a little different story than they mostly read. Uh, I've been at this for 50 years. I'm 100% convinced that man has zero impact on the temperature of the planet. Uh, If it's not zero, you can't find it. It's uh, so many zeros to the right of a decimal point that it's silly, even though people smarter than I will hang on to the fact that there is uh, some impact. But it's, it's absolutely ridiculous. But how do they go about, you know, suing an oil company for hiding information when there is no damaging uh, information that can be supported scientifically? So there's a lot there. And, you know, of course, every, every animal, start with termites or whomever, every, every, every animal or, or humans impact their ambient environment. Uh, whether when it comes to climate, it's detectable again. That's, that's the question. Is it catastrophic? That seems absurd. And it seems to be, sadly, it is, it is sure in many respects a cult. It's a religious movement. I don't think it's too quasi-religious. It's a faith. It has all the, uh, Michael Crichton pointed it out best. It has all the tenets of the faith from, from original sin and uh, fall from grace and the chance for redemption and so on. But There has been this acceptance. It's taken a long time. It's been enabled by the the useful idiots I described in industry, the 
environmentalist movement now calls it greenwashing. But look, it's cheap virtue. For years, it was cheap virtue to say, yeah, me too. And I think in Enron's case and the, the other rent seekers around it, they were saying, but they'll never go all the way of what the implications of this are. Okay, for years, utilities were running around insisting, I must be paid to not kill the planet. And I kept wondering, do you even have lawyers? <laughs> they did. They had tons of lawyers designing the scheme. Enron had set something up with Goldman Sachs, a, a trading floor to trade ration coupons. Uh, lots of law firms were in on this. But these utilities were saying, we must be paid to stop killing the planet. Well, that was just simply, I'll tell you what, if you give me huge bags of money to transition from coal to gas, I'll go along with this. And then, of course, everybody understands the need for affordable, abundant, reliable energy. So they'll never go all the way and we'll just be sitting on a giant pile of money. Well, obviously, it slipped the leash and industry has helped it along. So that's a that is a lot. There are always zealots. There are always fanatics. There's always there was a there was a cooling movement. Then the, the warming movement became a climate industrial complex when visionaries like Ken Lay and Sir John Brown of BP decided they could make a fortune off of it. And they threw a lot of money behind mainstreaming. It no longer was a few people with pinwheel hats and sandwich boards outside the White House, right? It was a climate industrial complex. And all the smart people knew it and it became unmentionable to challenge this cocktail parties and so on. And then it became in ad campaigns and Super Bowl ads. And it's just accepted wisdom. But again, there's this latent skepticism a lot of people have, which has been, again, excited because they now realize when all experts agree or insist upon. So that's the context. And uh, that's the jury pool. And my take is this plaintiff's industry that came about, and it has captured every institution, universities, media, congressional investigating committees. We can get into that if we have time. You see reporters being hired by nonprofits and placed in newspapers, local papers, the Minneapolis Star Tribune, the reporter covering Keith Ellison's litigation actually has been put there by a green group. And of course the AP national organizations, they're hiring many paid for by the Hewlett Foundation. It goes on and on. Congressional investigations now. We found they're being privately staffed and that, that is against the law and house ethics rules. I expected I would learn a different uh, take and you are really delivering. It's just more amazing than I would have even have recognized how well it's tied together. Tom and I did a show a couple of weeks ago. I've written an article about really you're pointing out that virtually every institution is supporting it. And we were able to track it back to an Italian communist by the name of Antonio Gramsci in the middle 1930s when uh, he laid out a plan to take over the world for communism by infiltrating every institution. And it turned out to be fairly easy to do that over a matter of decades for uh, liberals to uh, volunteer, be, uh, volunteer to be on this board or another board. And uh, you pretty much described the result. But I want to circle back to a term you used that I'm not sure our audience fully understands and that's greenwashing. What is that? So, and you're right, Gramsci coined the long march through the institutions and we're seeing it, we're seeing it play out. So greenwashing is a term, it's a pejorative and I, I don't much care for the practice myself because again, it really dumbs down what's, what we've seen. 
when you just nod along, go along, get along and enable, you see it can, there are terrible, terrible, devastating human social consequences from this, okay? It's energy rationing. Read what's going on in Europe, which is a few years more advanced, metastasized on this than we are. And you see what happens. And yes, many of us, and thanks to you too as well, have been pointing this out for years. Of course, this is what happens. Wealthier is healthier, wealthier is cleaner, wealthier is greener, it's more resilient. People don't move to Bangladesh, they move to Florida, the same storm's gonna hit, what, where do you wanna be and why? Well, so greenwashing is this idea of cheap virtue. Um, and that's, I got that from Dick Lindzen. Look, I've got this screaming, frothing mob that has boycott campaigns and, and this is what they do. And they're terribly well-funded, obviously. Fortunately, too well-funded, I think. They keep, they keep, no one's ever spent this kind of money and not prevailed since the Soviet Union. And they figure, well, what the heck? I will, I'll say green. I'll say this is green, that's green. My, we call it zero emission energy. I just read a, a news story today talking about carbon-free energy. Oh, for heaven's sakes, you know what goes in to a windmill or an electric vehicle or a solar. I mean, this is just nonsense, right? It's utterly dumbing down language, but industry is glad to go along. If that's where a consumer sentiment might be, you can have clean or dirty, which do you choose? Obviously that's absurd, but that's the pitch. Uh, that's where the subsidies are. So industry will start by saying ours is green, ours is the clean alternative. And then pretty soon they'll be advertising some project to distract from their activities that the frothing mob is seeking to shout out of existence. So it can be rhetorical, it can go further, it leads to, unfortunately, it's a gateway drug. It has led to this, I'm sure you've covered this, this ESG, this environmental social governance madness that's taken over investing. Indeed we have, yeah. Okay, yeah, we, we certainly have. Industries access to capital by saying, yeah. well, I know you're a, you're, a, you're a mining company and you, you want to buy new equipment to mine more because it turns out the world's starving for energy, but I'm a lender and I've got an ESG problem. If I do this, it lowers my score, so I won't lend to you. And so when somebody says, oh my gosh, we desperately need more coal or we need more rail cars to move it, they say, sorry, the, I've got an ESG problem. I can't borrow the capital. Uh, I can't contract with you and so on. It's a way to it's, it's kind of like uh, Operation Choke Point. I think that's what it was. You saw Eric Holder when he tried to run out of business, perfectly legal businesses, payday lending or something else, firearms, by going after their businesses. Well, that's the end result of greenwashing. So again, I wish industry would stop and think about the consequences of their action. It isn't actually cheap virtue. It's going to be costly, not for, just for you, but for society, as we've seen. It's turning around a little bit for, to remind our audience ESG stands for environment, social, and governance, and third parties give scores to uh, companies, just as Chris has explained. And if your score is not appropriate, then it's hard to get financing and it's having an impact. But it's starting to turn around a little. I think there are as many as uh, 17 state attorney generals have uh, written rules against that kind of elimination of financing of companies based on this absurd uh, ESG score, which is just a totally liberal uh, kind of situation. But there's a, in, in reading an article about this, there is some kind of accountability and there's something called the Government Accountability Oversight Group. Could you explain what that is? Is that good or bad? Is it effective or ineffective? 
Uh, GAO is a, it's a nonprofit organization, began as a nonprofit public interest law firm, now just supports other organizations, public, generally public records, but also amicus brief, legal pursuits, focused on the energy and environment space, GAO, uh, govoversight.org. I was on their board for its first three years. I now represent GAO. GAO has been invaluable because this is something, you know, that big law firms will offer their pro bono time generally to the left and for, for reasons similar to why you get into greenwashing. A, it's where the client's charitable, founda- charitable foundations are giving. It may be where our business is. It's obviously, we want good news. We want good headlines. And if we support conservatives or free market or classical liberal groups, why that'll be deemed controversial. So we know where big laws pro bono support goes. We know about the left-wing public interest legal groups, but there just wasn't enough on the classical liberal free market or pro-transparency from an anti-energy rationing viewpoint, for example. And so GAO was formed about four years ago. And so GovOversight's a very helpful organization. In fact, it was the plaintiff in some litigation that revealed a lot of helpful information about something you raised, which is the role of academia in all of this. So GAO sued uh, UCLA Law School, the California regents, but let's say UCLA Law School in a lawsuit that just concluded in April after two years of litigation. So obviously the pursuit began before that. It was a matter, it involved the role of just that law school, its role, in this climate litigation industry. You'd ask me how did this come about? And I was explaining my view of what I think the context was. These lawsuits come about claiming you caused or worsened global warming and therefore we're gonna sue you. Don't you wanna settle? Uh, There's a whole industry in this and academia plays a big role. What's the role? Well, they're providing faculty to serve as surrogates, offering their chin stroking academic, presumably neutral observer insights turns out they are very often on the plaintiff's legal team, but they're quoted in the media as law professors. And as a law professor, I must tell you, I thought this was very serious and very, or maybe I came to it skeptically, but now I've been convinced and so on. They're providing thousands of student hours to help the legal pursuits, the lawsuits, the governmental lawsuits against industry. Something that I think it was the city of San Francisco called their secret weapon. They have the Yale Law School helping them out, and I believe others in their lawsuits against industry saying, uh, I'm going to say, you, I say you cause global warming. Wouldn't you like to pay us a lot of money? It'd be a shame if a bunch of other municipalities sued you too. Well, this is happening mostly at private universities. And again, I was talking about institutions. Universities are fully thrown in with this. Law schools. Columbia, Yale, Harvard, NYU, University of Chicago, they they have often named donor centers dedicated to this. In Chicago, it's the Abrams School. Wendy Abrams is a big Democratic donor. NYU has Michael Bloomberg's group, which was created to place activist lawyers in state attorneys general's offices to help this campaign and otherwise push Michael Bloomberg's agenda. Uh, Harvard has an Emmett Center. So does UCLA. And UCLA is a public university. It has an Emmett Center, the same donor, a Californian, these green Republican donors named Dan Emmett. So this turned up in some document productions and it turned out there was a quote, secret meeting at Harvard. And that's what the emails said. (laughs) They called it a secret meeting at Harvard with attorneys general, prospective funders, 
Now, what, what in the world did that mean? Perspective funders of governmental lawsuits, that had us perplexed, and academics and activists. And it was a bunch of activists who, who sort of usual suspects who'd been pushing this idea of law enforcement needs to help the left on this front for years. Well, when they involve a public institution, not, not that law enforcement isn't, but they involve the public law school and another and Oregon State University too, some academics. So CEI, Competitive Enterprise Institute, and EELI, who you mentioned, and, and GAO, others began making requests saying, well, as with the AGs, we'd like to know how these public institutions came to be used this way. What is, what is your role in this epidemic of governmental litigation against private parties, including law enforcement? It looks very often, as with the Bloomberg lawyers and others, not just in coordination with, but at the request of donors. I assure you, you would view it as cancerous too, my good friends on the left, if we just reverse the parties. Are you saying the National Rifle Association can chair prosecutorial seats in AG offices to go after opponents of the Second Amendment? Are you saying that right to life can chair a prosecutor to investigate abortion? I didn't think so. Or the co-founder. I mean, it's very easy with the counterfactuals to say, I bet you would find it wrong if the other guys did that. But we found that these donors are, are financing even law enforcement. No. This really begs the question, and I guess I know the answer. Uh, I was going to ask, do most climate activists really believe in man-caused climate change, or do they just hate American capitalism? But you're laying out a case that it's really all about money. So I, I call it, I viewed it as a symphony of hysteria with many chairs, right? You've got the kid, I live in a university town, the kids, the college kids tapping on your, your door for money. I believe they believe, okay? They're college kids. The upper echelons, the upper ranks, Michael Bloomberg, I don't know. I don't know. I do know a lot of the folks who threw in were plainly doing it. They're rent seekers, okay? I, if I galvanize for a living, I'm gonna press for lawmakers to require that every driveway in this country have guardrails, okay? You, you can, that's a big market. When you rob Peter to pay Paul, you've got Paul's enthusiastic support. So industry was behind a lot of this. Industry was also, and as we discussed, playing a useful idiot role. Uh, and now they're playing the role of defendants. We could discuss there are financial interests. Let's say the guy who funds the Emmett Centers and is thereby funding, and he's funding a lot of the litigation as emails have shown. So he's a commercial real estate developer and he has an interest in a solar window, solar energy window company. Well, you can see the obvious benefits from at least one of those from the industry. Is the whole movement self-interested? Is his whole interest self-interested? I don't know. It could be committed ideologically. But, but yes, there are an awful lot of parties involved in this, and particularly the ones who got it off the ground, who got it up on its feet, who were the industry, the Ken Lays and the John Browns and the Niagara Mohawk Powers, and I can tell you others who were in the room in the meetings I was in with Union of Concerned Scientists and, and the other green groups back in 97, thinking they could simply make money off of this and that it wouldn't turn into what it has become. I mean, they're, they're high priestess now, you've seen just as we speak now. You can say, well, they're really just Marxists, or you can listen to people like Greta Thunberg say, well, to me, it's really just about, it's not really about climate, is it? No. It's about a much larger, well-understood ideological movement. And climate is, I viewed it as the, it's the bus coming by. It's, it's funny, for years, 
it's changed, I, I think, but for years, and it, this contributed to greenwashing, you say, well, we'll just call something green. And, uh, or we'll say because climate, you saw the, inf the Inflation Reduction Act. Well, that it's, it's turned, right? The Inflation Reduction Act apparently was a climate. It was their long held wish list of spending and subsidies and other SOPs and, and ways to impose the energy rationing agenda. But inflation was polling well and climate doesn't anymore. But previously, while they used to say green to get things going, even if it really wasn't about that, but again, none of these schemes would detectably impact the climate. No model says they would. No claim says they would. There are a lot of implications that they would, pregnant implications, but no, the Paris, the treaty after the Paris Treaty, the temperature after the Paris Treaty, if you carry the one, would be whatever the temperature would have been without the Paris Treaty and so on. It's not about the climate. And it used to be, well, we'll just say it is to, to do this, that, or the other. It's so out of favor now that, again, the Inflation Reduction Act was apparently really their climate agenda, yeah. but they only announced that after he signed it. Uh, quite some let, let, me, let me circle back again, just for a term. I, I never like to leave any terms that some of the audience may not understood. This one is a little bit simple, but uh, rent seekers is a term we all read about, and I would guess half the audience understands it. But in a few brief sentences, how do you define rent seeking. So if you've got a widget and you'd like a bigger market, you, you'd like people to buy it more than the ones who think I'd like a widget, you lobby your congressman to require people buy widgets, either directly or indirectly. In Ken Lay's case, it was, I'll buy the world's largest windmill company. And then I, because I'm very politically powerful, I will lobby the governor of Texas and the Texas legislature to go all in on wind. And he did. And then I'll move to Washington and become the Greens and Teresa Hines carries Eminence Greaves, and she was fawning over him in emails that became public uh, because it's not economic, but it will be if I can get policies passed forcing people to buy my stuff, provide me rents. So I'll go to my lawmakers and I will seek rents through mandating people buy my stuff and or kneecapping my more economic competition. Hmm. Wow. On that note, we have to go for a break. We'll be right back with Chris Horner. And I encourage people, especially, to look up his best selling book, Red Hot Lies How Global Warming Alarmists Use Threat, Fraud, and Deception to Keep You Misinformed. So we'll be right back after the break. Maintaining a strong immune system has never been more critical. Nutrition company Healthy Cell created Immune Super Boost to help you strengthen your immunity, unlike other supplements that don't work. Immune Super Boost is not a pill. It's a gel you swallow with ultra absorption of science-backed nutrients proven to support immunity, like vitamin C, D3, zinc, elderberry, and echinacea. Go to HealthyCell.com and use limited time code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Risk-free, love it, or your money back, guaranteed. HealthyCell.com, code out loud. All right, you've all heard Malcolm and the great Dr. Peter McCullough talk about the pulpidone iodine-based nasal spray, Cofix RX. They talk about it because it's a product that actually works in combating colds, flus, and coronaviruses. Cofix is made in the USA and recommended by thousands of doctors and pharmacists nationwide. It's simple. By attacking viruses where they incubate, you make it easier for your body to heal. Check out the CofixRx banner ad on AmericaOutloud.com and save 20% by using promo code OUTLOUD. Our guest today is Christopher Horner, 
a lawyer who specializes in energy and environment issues. He's testified before the United States Senate committees on foreign relations and environment and public works. And he's worked on legal policy issues with numerous think tanks and other policy organizations around the globe. You know, Chris, there was one thing I wanted to go back to, a term that our listeners may sort of understand, but that is useful idiots. What do you mean when you say that the energy companies and Republicans are being useful idiots? Again, I was completely blindsided by this experience with Enron. And again, it was 25 years ago, um, 97. And I was, as I like to say, innocently practicing law. And I had, I walk into this meeting and I just, it was truly had me stunned that as I asked to somebody next to me in this meeting, and I'm trying to Dewey Valentine, a law firm that no longer exists because of RICO, uh, we were in their Washington, D.C. office with all of the luminaries of the green movement and a lot of industry around a very, very big table. And I turned to the industry representative next to me, and I remember saying, what are we doing around the table with people who want to put us out of business? Because that seemed elemental to me. This is is there a logical conclusion to your what we do is killing the planet or is this really a foolish a fool's errand here you you're to make some money you're willing to go along with this thinking at the end you know both Ken Lay and Univ concerned scientists were pretty sure that in the end they'd get their way well one of them was probably going to be right and i think industry has for the most part now realized this this pet project has slipped the leash Again, ESG is designed to strangle them all from access to capital. And it turns out that is largely funded by a green investor named Sir Christopher Hahn out of the UK. And so industry went along. Well, but we'll make a fortune in the next decade. Hillary Clinton liked to say, well, industry is improperly guided by the next uh, earnings report. They did not see over the horizon. Well, for example, Europe. I used to, I worked in Brussels in the member states for a European think tank. And they clearly needed somebody who was willing to express these positions because, as I was told, you don't understand. We can't. Uh, it's we've already it's it's gotten to the point where this kind of speech isn't permitted. You're allowed to come over, say these things. You leave. We say, boy, yeah, boy, boy, that was just awful. But, you know, he raised some points and they were very candid to me privately about we need somebody to do this. Why? Because for years, all the politicians acted like industry. But this is in my interest to say, boy, I, I hear your problem and I agree it's grave and I will do, I care and I will do something for you on this. In fact, I'll give you stuff and vote to give you money to do this and I'll vote to protect you. There was just this, there's an easy path and a hard path. And there was this assumption and it was generally right. On one side is this screaming mob and on the other, there really isn't anything. What would I, as an elected official, choose to do? Take on the screaming mob? When, in fact, if I go with them, I'll probably not hear anything about it. And these consequences they're talking about, well, those chickens will likely come home to roost after it's a concern to me. Well, industry is behaving in much the same way. Like, it's like the peace movement during the old Soviet Union days that the Soviet Union considered them useful idiots because they helped the Soviets actually continue to build you know, SDI components and cruise missiles and everything else while they condemned us for doing the same thing. I would say it, there was a recent episode, a fracking company, I think is Aubrey, I'm forgetting his name. Aubrey McClendon, $100 million, right, to Sierra Club. Who do you think thought was who's using who at the beginning? Uh, both of them probably thought they were using each other. 
Who ended up laughing at the end? I think Sierra Club was probably a little more committed in their belief that they were using this guy and he was a useful idiot. He may have thought these folks are sincerely helping me. They view me as far superior to my competition that I'm trying to use this advocacy to run out of business. Mm -hmm. I believe they knew all along, having been in these meetings at the beginning, again, which is why it's very hard to disown me of my view of what's going on here. Uh, I was in the room back at, in 97 when they were pulling this together. If briefly, it was enough. I think Sierra Club knew full well that they were dealing with useful idiots. Oh, I, 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 there's yeah. no question. No question in my mind. Uh, sadly, I think he woke up to it. It's interesting. You're probably aware uh, he died in a car crash going oh, 80 miles an hour into a stone wall at the age of 57. Uh, I actually have always theorized that he committed suicide because of the embarrassment that he suffered and he lost, he had built up a fortune and then lost it. And I think he woke up one day and realized that he had been used as a uh, useful idiot. But I want to move on to something that you would know about that I don't, and that's the Collective Action Fund that has been behind uh, lawsuits to I believe 37 different uh, oil companies on a, a variety of environmental issues like sea level rise and forest and ocean destruction. Uh, what and how is the Collective Action Fund funded? Is everybody uh, chipped in there? What's that about? So it's getting more difficult to discern, but it's a heck of a story. And we're only just learning about this. Here's what happened. The lawsuit against UCLA Law School, simply to find out, it's just for public records, but again, you chose, you're going to Columbia, Yale, Harvard, NYU, Chicago, okay, private institutions, but you're now using a public institution's way, and part of the deal for your very cushy package, you know, $550,000 to teach a couple classes a year, yeah, there are some strings that come with that, and one of them is public records laws. And so government accountability and oversight sued UCLA. They spent about $600,000 defending it, both paying our fees and theirs at the end after we prevailed. And we now know why they fought so hard and spent so much. It revealed a lot about how this is being done. And it revealed this collective action fund. There's an email in this cache in what was produced. And you can find them at climatelitigationwatch.org. And it's from a plaintiff's law firm a plaintiff's law firm that was formed not long before the email was written by a Green Group lawyer named Vic Scher and a colleague of his named Matt Edling. It's called Scher Edling. And I think it's 2016, uh, 15. Anyways, right before the, the lawsuits began being filed, it seems to have been formed for this purpose. And it's out in California. Well, they were being funded very, I would say, under, let's just call it secretly because for a lot of reasons, and you can read the records and the write-ups about it at Climate Litigation Watch, a charitable foundation was paying a for-profit law firm a lot of money in, quote, charitable grants. And one reason I say it's sort of under the table is the IRS reports were saying charitable grants to promote healthy communities, uh, and then they changed the name one year, and then they changed the reason the third year. Well, this email showed that actually all that money was being paid to them to file these lawsuits which is not how it was reported to the IRS by the Charitable Foundation. And it was being run through, a, it, it's a collective action fund is what they called it by a group called Resources Legacy Fund. I had never heard of either. I can't tell you much about either, except that it seemed to come out of nowhere. And suddenly it's 
financing one of what I think is a real scourge in our legal system and, and were they to prevail, would have tremendous social and economic consequences as well, obviously. But the money was coming from Leonardo DiCaprio at first. The Leonardo DiCaprio Foundation, which no longer exists, it merged with some others, boasted briefly and then scrubbed from the website that it was paying a collective action fund at Resources Legacy Fund to finance climate litigation. And that's all it said. Well, these emails turn up from about the same time, 2016, in which a non-lawyer with a law firm is, is telling a donor, hey, uh, or a prospective donor, ended up being a donor, uh, a supporter, Emmett, hey, uh, we just filed our first one of these lawsuits and more are coming. And uh, would you like to give to the collection action fund? And he went on and on and on. And the donor, thank goodness, forwarded it to the law school and said, hey, what do you think about this? And the law professor said, well, to be honest, I'm actually on the board advising them, as is Terry Taminen from Leonardo DiCaprio's foundation. So that's a long way of saying there's a lot of pass-throughs here of wealthy elites taking tax breaks to run money through foundations to then pay a for-profit law firm to file these lawsuits on behalf of government against industry, saying you caused or made worse climate change and you need to give us an awful lot of money. Wait, there's more. The same governments are giving that law firm what, what are called contingency fee contracts. Contingency fee contracts used to be disallowed and they're only recently allowed in Europe because they were deemed they had ethical, well, I don't know about this. You're encouraging people to, to file a lot of lawsuits seeking a lot of money on spec. And anyway, there were problems, but the idea was, well, these law firms are making an investment. They're, they're making an investment in this long litigation and they stand a chance of not getting paid. So we'll let you take, you know, if you've got a phone, you've got a lawyer, you can take a lot of the settlement to pay you because you took this chance and you might not have been paid. And these politicians are giving that contract to this law firm out of what they say that the taxpayers have suffered. And it turns out this law firm has been paid millions of dollars already. Uh, Chris, it would seem to me that it should be illegal for a nonprofit organization to give money to a profitable organization. Is that legal? It seems like it shouldn't be. No, it, it, this, the, the issue here really is one of, well, there are two issues. One of disclosure. Okay, so this charitable foundation, I don't know why they kept reporting it as being for something else, but they were. It's to promote healthy communities and so on. Now, if they're ever pressed, after all, with all these new IRS auditors coming, surely these left-wing foundations will receive scrutiny. Um, if ever pressed, they may say, well, don't you see our climate litigation would promote healthy communities? Well, why did you change the reason every year if it was always for the same reason? So the foundation may have some explaining to do. I don't think the law firm does. I think the law firm probably paid tax on it either way. The issue is disclosure. What did the law firm tell its clients? Because in almost every jurisdiction, I think all but California and Maryland among these, you know, Minnesota's filed a lawsuit, Charleston, South Carolina, Baltimore, Maryland, uh, Boulder, Colorado, all these jurisdictions, many, dozens now, there's a rule. There's an ethical rule, and these lawyers are being waived into the local courts on the promise that they'll abide by these rules. And these rules include, if somebody else pays your client's legal bills, you need informed consent. Well, another group I represent called Energy Policy Advocates has been requesting and filing lawsuits saying, 
this is very unusual. You're getting paid millions of dollars and you're getting these massive contingency fee agreements to, to take an enormous sum of what we're being told are taxpayer losses. Surely you told the client this, right? And so far, only one jurisdiction has said they have any records mentioning any of this. Well, I've got, a qu- I've got a question to insert here that I am sure every one of our listeners will be interested in your answer. Is there any chance now with the sure Republican Congress that will take their seats in January that the 87,000 new IRS agents can be stopped from taking their offices? I'll go back to that other point in a second, because there's one other thing I want to say. But rescission is, I believe, will be first, one of the first things Congress seeks to do if, in fact, a majority is elected in both bodies to to stop the madness. They will seek to rescind recently passed spending, including that. I'm assuming this. The Republicans have been fairly light on details, but they've you know, individual candidates have said, I'm going to push for this, that, and the other. And I've heard numerous of them saying, and that has been stopped. You don't want border agents, for example, but you think 87,000 new IRS employees, including, I forget how many thousands of of investigators and auditors. So, but will Congress, for example, Congress has been holding investigative hearings, privately staffed, we now know, thanks to some clumsy boasting, that's not proper, to replace because the courts have been not been doing this climate litigation industry and complex not been doing what they wanted and certainly not fast enough, they then privately staffed one more institution, Congress. Well, they've been investigating, they say, with no apparent legitimate legislative purpose, which is actually required. They've been investigating, privately staffed, this now trying to replace the AGs. Why doesn't Congress investigate What's going on here? First of all, they ought to investigate themselves. What's going on? You have rules. Are you going to enforce them? George Soros and Pierre Omidyar boasted on their group's websites that they were financing congressional oversight. And we know the group they were funding, they said, I'm forgetting their name right now, uh, that boasted about it itself. Congress ought to take a look and see if they've been behaving properly. But they ought to look into these practices, too, because this is clearly a coordinated national campaign. Politicians are also on the hook. In addition to what did the law firm tell the client? What if the law firm did tell Keith Ellison, hey, by the way, I'm getting paid millions of dollars to file this, but can you still give me this contract? Because I have to tell you in Minnesota for you to give me, if someone's paying your bills, I, I have to tell you and you have to okay it. Well, the politicians are on the hook. These are fiduciaries for us. And in all of these jurisdictions, they are giving away what they claim are huge damages from the taxpayer suffered by the taxpayer to a law firm who presumably told them they were already being paid. So there's a lot of oversight if we can move beyond all of this, you know, the way Congress has been weaponized. There's a lot of actual oversight into how our institutions have been at least small c corrupted, right? I mean, you've got donors. I don't think it's, it's, it's not criminal corruption for, to put privately to activists in journalist positions. People can accept what they read or not, purchase the, the product or not. But when you get into law firms, uh, sorry, law enforcement, attorneys general, and maybe, as we saw in Minnesota, where they were using University of Minnesota letterhead, but to promote memos drafted by outside activists whose names obviously weren't on the memo because they're not law faculty. There are various instances that, I'll tell you what, let's, instead of weaponizing all these institutions, let's take a look at how they've been used. Let's reform ourselves. Let's start by complying with our own laws. 
And back to those websites, Climate Litigation Watch and GovOversight.org, you can read about these findings and, and how University of Minnesota Law School, how did that letterhead come to be used this way on behalf of, quote, lawyers advising the Rockefeller Family Fund? How did law enforcement come to be used in a way that if the NRA or Right to Life did it, I think would rain Pulitzers from the sky, <laughs> all the coverage of it. Let's start by enforcing our own rules before you weaponize all these institutions to go after your political opponents. Well, well you've really made me feel even a little more optimistic because you've uh, laid out quite a few roadmaps uh, where the, a new Congress, and it will be a new Congress, will have an opportunity to throw some monkey wrenches into the small C corruption that's going on. I'm, I'm also very optimistic. I've been studying the, the new folks that are running for Congress. And uh, while by and large, the Republicans haven't been much better than the Democrats, I see a new breed an awful lot with uh, military service, not at the at the admiral and, and uh, general level where they're yes man, but just people that uh, have served tours of duty and would, and would like to make a difference. And I'm hoping they will not be corrupted. And so I'm, I really think we'll see some changes. It's going to be slow. Uh, everyone says this is the most important election. That's never true. All elections are important. I think this is a big one. Two years from now, uh, even, even bigger. But you really have laid out opportunities for these new people make a uh, difference. And I really think it'll happen. I have a somewhat maybe a dumb attitude toward climate activists and the environmental groups. And I, I really tend to think of them as being Marxist. Uh, I suppose that's an oversimplification, but uh, how much of Marxism and anti-capitalism uh, is part of this, or do we come down to the fact that it's 90% money? Well, and, and by the way, I testified at one Senate hearing next to Maurice Strong, who I know, Jay, you recall. Um, of course I do, yes. Okay, and he naturally, he made his fortune in oil and then ran around insisting that, uh, well, he's aboard, pull up, pull up the ladder. Um, with this argument that you don't hear many poor people say, which is we just, we need to impose energy scarcity. Now I'm, I'm a extraordinarily rich man. I don't know if he's a billionaire. He's, he, and I, I did it through liberating hydrocarbons. And now I'm going to, whatever my reason is, promote this agenda. Marxism or socialism and, and wealthy people can certainly run hand in hand. Now it could be out of their own feeling of guilt. Why in the world do I have so much, whatever their rationale is, but it's fair to, guess based on context. And among the context is, what do they say? Well, Greta obviously let that cat out of the bag with her. I don't, I don't think she's out of step with her peers, right? She's been marinating in this movement for several years as, again, there, she seems to be a manufactured by the movement. And she said, well, all right, look, it's not really about climate. It's essentially Marxism. Okay. Is it just Greta? Well, Alex Epstein has done a great job, but others and he's, he's popularized it and done a great job articulating it, but it's been apparent for years that from, you remember when the wall fell and how many, how many reds, you know, self-proclaimed reds were immediately retread into greens. It was amazing yeah. the attraction the green movement had to the red movement. I mean, it's remarkable. I was, 
but my wife's from Denmark. We were up, up last night, the Danish elections were yesterday and we were watching late at night the, this, this very curious approach the Danes had in their parliament. It looked like Survivor or a game show where they were all sort of competing to see who would be the governing block. And you could see how they, and, and the Reds, and they called themselves the Red. The Red group was over there with the Greens. And by the way, it was really, I only understand a little bit of Danish, but it was really troubling how everyone just fawns over climate. It, it, it's a fate there. But I'm, I'm reminded quite often in going over there, just the, the incredible overlap between when the Red Movement was really discredited hard, they became Greens pretty quickly. And what, if you look at the Green Party, look at their agenda, it's not name calling to say that they have an awful lot common. And it's one of these incredible coincidences if the Greens don't happen to be socialist slash Marxist. So, but then you can listen to their high priestess Greta and say, okay, maybe that's really what it's about. But again, I think it's a useful exercise because it's not about the climate. It's not rationally about the climate. The, the guy from UVA banging on my door for money might think it's about climate, but nothing ever proposed would detectably impact the climate. It's not rationally about the climate. It can't possibly be about the climate in the end. It's about other things. It can be about a control fetish. It can be anti-human, as Alex pointed out quite a bit. My book, uh, Politically Incorrect Guide to Global Warming, I spent a very dispiriting few pages going through quotes of luminaries being very candid about how there's just enough of them, way too many of you and me. And we need to start by depopulating the earth, beginning with those those wretched brown people. I mean, it truly is. It's well, not you, you have, you've, you've really uh, said a mouthful here for our audience, because I think we have a very conservative audience. I would say 80 percent. They recognize that man caused climate change is a fraud. But I think next time they're sitting at a dinner table talking about it, they should be focusing on what you just said. It's not about climate. It's not about science. And they, we, if we explain that more and more to people who could be friends and supporters of it, I, I think we'll begin to move much further. And to your point about the uh, red becoming green, when Mr. Khrushchev stepped down from the leadership of Russia, he moved immediately to the head of an international uh, environmental group. And, and there was never any question in my mind from the very beginning that, you know, the watermelon thing, you know, the green melon on the inside is, yeah. uh, is red. There's, uh, there's virtually no difference. We have to wrap up now. It's uh, been great talking to you, Chris. You know, we know that you're very successful and, and actually very uh, impactful because of the fact that the environmental activists put up a wanted poster for you in Paris in 2015. And that actually leads to my last question. And that is, have you found speaking out on this issue has been personally dangerous to you? I don't know about dangerous, but I live out in central Virginia now because of the, the, the privacy issues. I mean, they were, I can tell you other stories. It was, it was, it's nothing like it is today, but this was, this was 17 years ago, but they, they were taking my trash every week and putting it in before they put it in the guardian and El Pais and Afton Bladet in Sweden and, and uh, um, where else Deutsche Welle and so on all carved up. And um, I mentioned to somebody, I mentioned to, to Phil Cooney, who I, I'd actually mentioned to his wife that I thought they were taking my trash. And she said, you too. And she called her husband over. Phil and I, you know, Phil didn't, we did not work together. The Greens were sure we were doppelgangers and we were close friends and allies. And I can tell you that was not at all the case. But 
a very large going away party for him. I mentioned to his wife, who also lived in Alexandria, Virginia at the time, I believe they're taking my trash because Sunday nights, <laughs> it was gone and my neighbors, <laughs> was I thought, well, their government's being remarkably efficient here, singularly with me. But, <laughs> and uh, anyway, I had two large breed dogs. I started having some fun with their output with my trash. It didn't seem to bother the greens, but I later found out but somebody told me, yeah, oh, we've known that for a while. They've been giving your trash to uh, the Washington Post, National Journal, and Roll Call. And I'm like, well, hey, you, you, you know, you should have felt free to tell me this. But they were taking Phil Cooney's too, and they were a White House aide. He ended up going to ExxonMobil, so that you know, I'm sure they love that. But he was a White House aide at the time, and they're they're dumpster diving, and that wasn't by any means the only effort to uh, get in my space. So whether or not it was personally dangerous, obviously they are, they have for years sought to incite with their rhetoric. I think a, a mild example was Barbara Boxer going to the floor of the Senate. How would you, in the context of what's happened in San Francisco recently and the reportage about that, how would you then say, what about that California Congress Senator who went to the floor of the Senate and said, you people who oppose my agenda are just like leaving children in a locked car on a hot summer day in a parking lot. All these bad people are doing that to all of you out there. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. By the way, not a few of whom are, I think frothing is charitable. They're inciting with their rhetoric and they have for years. Again, it's it was nothing then like it is now, but that's something to keep in mind. And they probably ought to too. If they've been watching MSNBC and what they're saying about how somehow this guy, this hippie out in San Francisco is uh, January 6th or something, maybe they ought to look in the mirror because mm. the green rhetoric about my opponents are killing you and the children and the planet, it's not going to stop the property damage. You know, they're, they're, they're blowing things up and they're destroying property now and judges are winking at it, calling it the necessity defense. Mm. If a row of townhouses is burning, you have the ability and the right to knock down one of them to stop the fire. So they're destroying property saying it's the same thing. Mm. I assure yeah. you, this is not going to stop with property, okay? It's just like industry. Do you really believe there's a rational conclusion at property, that this stops with property, with this rhetoric. These people are killing children. They're killing the planet. You all do about it what you wish. Mm, yeah, so exactly. Not, again, a lot of social consequences from what we're enabling here. Yeah. Well, it's great talking to you, Chris. And, you know, the um, World War II Lancaster bomber pilots, they said you only got flack when you were over the target because the, uh, the Germans wouldn't waste ammunition if you were bombing a cow field. So congratulations, I guess, on getting that kind of negative uh, reaction. <laughs> <laughs> so this is Dr. Jay Lair and Tom Harris with our guest, Christopher Horner. So we're signing out from the other side of the story. Bye.